Welcome to episode 11, Assisting Adolescents with Navigating the Complex Waters of Individuation by Talon Olguin, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hi there, this is Talon Olguin, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, and you are listening to the CEU for Assisting Adolescents with Navigating the Complex Waters of Individualization. This course is specifically designed to help you really kind of adjust to the teenage difficulties, transitions, way of thinking, and and a lot of the problems that they face. Working with an adolescent is quite different than working with someone who's younger, say eight, nine, sometimes even 10, obviously more than one, two, three, there's very different techniques involved. It's also very different from working with a young adult or an, an older adult because of the challenges that they're facing and the way that they process the world and just general coping skills. I find that understanding these problems and these issues that teens are facing and figuring out how to verbalize to them that you understand really builds a lot of rapport and quite a bit of relationship. And with an adolescent, your rapport and relationship will be one of the key things that you can really focus on with them. At this age, they're really just trying to find themselves, as we well know, and anything that they can have to latch onto that's a safety or comfort or even just a sounding board that they know is not going to judge them, that they can truly go to for their problems, whether they're looking for advice or clarity or processing of what they're going through. This is an age where they want that. And, you know, it's, it's up to each clinician how much advice they give. Uh, you know, I, I typically go towards the more minimal of helping them work through those problems because that's what we're trying to teach them. But oft, oftentimes, this is a big portion of working with an adolescent because of the different situations that they're facing in this new adult context. So with this, you know, I'm, I'm going to start off by focusing a lot on that individualization process, what that means, and why they're facing these kind of challenges. And, and we see these routine challenges with adolescents and teens and, and younger adults just because of how the world has shifted and the value systems that we have. And, and this can be applied to most situations. What I'm about to talk about, you know, whether it's, you know, they come from a single parent household, whether there's abuse, whether, you know, there's a huge support and family system, all of these things I have found apply in some way and they become very big because it's a universal issue that they're facing. So with that, I just kind of, I'm going to start off with basic skills and things that you should pay attention to when working with an adolescent. As I stated before, rapport building is an incredibly big part of this entire process. They are looking for adults to judge them. They are looking for reasons to doubt others. They are looking for exclusivity and ways to prove themselves. And that's just this generation. That's just this age and how we really work with them and and show them but I, you know, I'm, I'm here for you. I'm working with you. I want to help you as best that I can, but you got to let me. You, you can use me the way that you see fit, but of course I'm going to have some boundaries and some skills and some things that are just kind of set and being very clear from that from the beginning. The approach that I have found that worked very well, I was working with a residential program and then a PHP and IOP program for adolescent clients and their families is kind of just honesty, very upfront honesty. And they really appreciate that because they're used to interpreting people as discounting them, as not giving them the full story. And as much as it hurts, I've been told by multiple, multiple uh, adolescents that they really just appreciate the honesty because they know it's coming with support. And the less they feel like they have to navigate around that, the better that they do and because then they can just be kind of more bluntly honest with you as well. So that rapport building is pretty big and spending a lot of time trying to understand their situations. If you've listened to any of my other talks, you know, I'm a big fan of the genogram. 
mainly because it gives you a good sense of what their daily stressors are within that family, what the generational patterns are that they're either utilizing to their benefit or that they're struggling with. And that really permits you to start talking about people that they engage with daily on a first name basis that, you know, you can remind them of something they told you about a family member two weeks later. And as we know, with any client, that means quite a bit for an adolescent, for an adult, for an adult to remember something that they mentioned two weeks ago, it means a lot. You know, they, they fixate a lot on those, those small little details because to them they mean so much, but to an adult we know it changes, so most don't give it as much credit. So with that rapport building, I would focus quite a bit of time on that, probably more than I do in a lot of other groups because with adolescents when rapport is lost, even temporarily, it's very hard to bring back. It's very hard to engage. So having that basic structure has saved uh, myself and a lot of other colleagues quite a bit of work uh, down the road. Also being very clear of your own role. I did talk about this. With adolescents, different therapists take different approaches. Some are uh, a little bit more of guidance. Some work through things, some are more advice givers, some are more resource people, really knowing where you fit in in your niche to where you think you are helping this person become an adult. You know, you're, you're helping guide them, you're helping them see how to reach out to people, how to think through things, how to process what they're going through, and knowing how you go about that and what really is your style and works for you is important to know. Because you will kind of be thrown into a few different roles with an adolescent. They are in this crux between childhood and adult. And they're going to have problems and situations that at times will feel very juvenile. At times will feel like it's completely out of their hands and you should step in. And, And knowing where your role is and what your style is will help you really kind of mediate that a bit. Um... With that, the kind of third thing I'm going to say before we get into the more meatiness of it is a little bit back to that genogram of really knowing their current life events and their barriers. Each adolescent is going to come in with something different. And at times the stories may feel similar. My mom doesn't listen to me. I'm so alone. My, you know, my parents left me. There will be some common themes that you will hear, but each one is different and each kid has responded to it differently. Throw in their siblings. Uh, SES, uh, school problems, uh, everyone internalizes it differently. And because we have such a roller coaster of emotions that happen during adolescence and such a change of events, I was spending a lot of time really nitpicking those difficulties because then again, once you refer back to them, it just boosts your rapport to an entirely different level. All right. Okay. So within that, you know, just kind of keeping that stuff in mind when working with an adolescent, I would say of a huge portion to remember anytime you're working with someone who's in this age group. And by age group, I do mean, you know, about 12, because we do consider preteen and pre-adolescent really stepping into that genre now because of the, the amount and time frame and earliness of people growing up. You know, whether it's social media, whether it's, there's so many different arguments and reasons behind it. But what I would say is about 12 to 18. And so really kind of thinking of that um, in this adolescent teenage group. So what I'm going back to is, you know, the child self versus the adult self. This is their main challenge is bridging this gap during this time. If you think about it, for a little bit, you see that up until they kind of hit 12, around that age, they really were thinking most likely in more of a childlike mindset. You know, it's very simple things of, well, I want this. When do I get my food? I want to play with my friends. School is getting harder. But the the abstract stuff kind of gets handled by the parents. So they don't have to think about it as much. You know, they don't have to worry where's the food coming from. They don't worry long term what people think of me. You know, it, it's it's different in what their priorities and their goals are and what they're kind of able to look outside of themselves for. An adult is very different. An adult is constantly looking at the future, constantly looking at consequences, what they're kind of have to manage, uh, how they're going to get food on the table, who's going to affect them in their life, are they reaching their goals for life, what is death? I mean, there's so many other things that come and different issues on each side. 
you know. Um, So adolescence is kind of the bridge between this where you're moving out of this child protectiveness and and kind of the the only other word I can think of is, is just, you know, obliviousness sometimes, not calling children oblivious, but there are events that we don't want children to know about or things we don't want them to know about because it's not a healthy time for that that yet. And we protect them from it. As an adolescent, they start seeing these life events. They start seeing wars and they start processing abuse and they start hearing more about sexual situations. They have favoritism that's really paying, uh, playing a key role in their life. They have a whole new level of bullying, which I will say is is definitely going down to, to younger years continuously now. Uh, it just changes. And so helping someone transition tr- from this time of using more adult-like coping skills and adult-like abilities in these new situations is what they're facing. So that is, that's a lot of it. And you really want to, you know, just assist them in navigating and, and figuring out not only who they are, but how they would like to handle situations. If, if they don't agree with something that their parents do, how they're going to do it different and how to make that realistically. You know, if they do want to communicate in a different way, how they do that. If, they want to pursue a career or chase after something that seems so unattainable. Well, right. Well, let's think this through. When you were five years old and you wanted to be an astronaut, that's one thing. When you're 15 years old and you want to be an astronaut, that's entirely different. There are new challenges that you have to face. There are you know, new barriers that you have. So really helping to process and work through this. I'm going to go through now five key points and challenges that adolescents face really for the first time. And that first time is very important for me to emphasize because while these things were aware of before, it's at an entirely different level. It's at that more adult processing level, which is very difficult. So the the five that I'm going to go over is, is the first one is that individualization. And I'm going to spend the most time on this because that is a lot of what the adolescent time frame is about. It's about finding yourself. It's about differentiating yourself from your parents and, and really finding you, who you want to be and how you want to express that as an adult in this new world. So I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on that. The other four that I'm going to talk about that adolescents really face at this time are the constant change in hormones and brain fluctuations. There's quite a bit that goes on during this time that we need to take into account. Also, adult relationships. This includes peer relationships, romantic relationships, parent shifts, and and, and everything that's changing at that time. That's number three. Uh, Number four is going to be adult consequences. You know, the impact of a decision that you make as an adolescent affects you far more than it did when you were four years old. Will it affect you for the rest of your life? Probably not, but it will affect you for a longer time and possibly more in depth. The last point in this kind of five point challenge is the future. You know, you have suddenly a lot of goals that you're trying to reach. What you do now does impact you for a longer amount of time and you're oftentimes, at least in the United States culture, expected to know from a pretty early age what you want to pursue and how you're going to get there. So these are kind of the five. Let's just start off with this individualization because that is the goal of adolescence. The goal is to kind of step outside of this world that your family has built for you and explore. And that's actually very difficult when you really think about it because you're stepping outside of this identity that you've known for your entire life. You're separating yourself from that same unit. You're exploring. It's scarier. You don't have the same perfect, per, sorry, um, protective factors. And you're you're really lo- learning to diffuse yourself rather than be in this more enmeshed pattern. And so with that, I want you to picture kind of this this safety bubble. And when I say that, I don't mean that, you know, every client that's going to walk through your doors in a safe environment. I don't mean that they've all had perfect upbringing and, and parents, but it's a comfortable level to be in. It's something that makes sense. It, it may not be the best placement, but you know it. You know what to expect, whether that's you have a meal every day, whether that's you know 
you know, this parent is abusive and you know what the triggers are, whether it's, okay, so I have to go to school every day um, and then every four days I can pretend to be sick, whatever it happens to be, it is this kind of comfort zone that you have for yourself as a teenager. And I really want you to think about that, of what that comfort zone is, why that getting those barriers, that background information is so important to understand what that that is. When you are growing up or when you're, this adolescent client is growing up, a lot of the times this space, this bubble is created and dictated by the parents. You know, the parents pick where you live. The, the family members pick where you go to school, who you're spending time with, what kind of activities you do, who are their friends that come over and visit. You know, again, good or bad. This is kind of decided by outside forces. When you start getting a little bit older, especially with social media and what's going on there, you know, there's so much more access. There's more room. There's more sight. There's more vulnerability. And this natural inclination is to start challenging whatever the circle was before of asking questions, of trying to explore, see what's out there. This is a very, very healthy process. It is self-identity. It is challenging. It is goal-reaching. It is change. And this is one of the most natural processes that we can go through of really kind of separating a little bit. And this is where we hit some rocks. We hit some barriers here. Because a lot of the times you'll get kids who want to just reach out into that great big world and dive headfirst in. You know, they want to try everything that they can in this this bubble of life that they are determined to step out of. You know, they they see drugs. Oh, I've heard about those. They've seen, you know, high-risk behaviors of sneaking out. They they see a new band group that they want to join. They all of the above and it's stuff that maybe wasn't available to them before. And they don't need someone kind of hovering over them, asking them all the time what they're doing, at least in their mind. So that, that becomes very exciting. Whether you grow up in a household that is healthy or not, it is, you know, it's exciting to step outside of it. If for whatever reason, this adolescent doesn't want to go back to that safety bubble, you know, that is also a discussion because a healthy kind of growing up and and individualization process is having the ability to step out of a safety zone, try something new, and then step back into the safety zone and process it. Of having someone who's healthy, who cares about you, who gives you space to talk it over with, to try exploring and, and seeing what worked and what didn't, and not just constantly being in this hypervigilant moment of, of being in, in the new event. It's very hard to make decisions when you're in the new event. It just all seems so amazing at the time or so horrible at the time. So that is what we want. We want this kind of back and forth movement in an adolescent's life where, okay, I'm going to go try, you know, being on the baseball team. Uh, Wow, I hate that. I'm going to go back here, kind of regroup, look around, see what I want to do awesome. They need a guitar player. I used to play guitar when I was five or six years old. I'm sure I could pick it up. Tries that. Absolutely loves it. Absolutely loves it. So they go back to the safety circle, they process it more, and then they figure out how they can go more in that area, right? What else is there that they can process that they can look at? And that's really kind of what we're looking for. We also have a third option that will often happen. I see this more with highly anxious people, with highly anxious kids in particular, uh, more with the anxiety, panic, maybe some OCD, things like that, where they refuse to leave this, this life bubble, right? They, they tried it once, maybe twice. It was too scary for them. They didn't feel like they could handle it. So they've instead decided to latch on to whatever they had before, to this comfort, to this safety, because whether it's perfect or not, it decreases their anxiety because they know what to expect. And instead of getting someone who steps out and tries new things, you're getting someone who will, you know, completely stifle themselves, 
A lot of the time, this looks like kids who are refusing to go to school or it takes them two to three hours to go to school. They spend an hour, two hours on the same project because they can't manage their anxiety symptoms and they're having panic attacks. This is the one who at 15, 16, 17 spends every weekend with their parents and they never ask to go out. They maybe have one friend that they sometimes hang out with, and they really have no goals for the future other than to stay at home and have parents protect them. And And this is something also that you'll see, and you're not getting that back and forth, right? You're not getting the exploration and the coming back and processing. You'll sometimes see this with abused kids as well. Of They don't want to leave that household because at least I know what to expect in my abuse situation here, right? It's the same protective factor that kids will get over their parents who would abuse them. As we know, kids who are abused are not often likely to purposefully call out their parents and tell a mandated reporter. There's a protective factor. There's a safety factor of, well, what else could I get? It could be worse. I could be with someone who does something much worse than what I go through right now. So a lot of the times you'll get that same safety reaction, that same anxiety-based reaction. And so with that, when we're, we're looking at how to help an adolescent, we really want to acknowledge this process. We want to acknowledge what works and what doesn't, where they feel safe, where they don't. Who is this, this comfort, this person that they can process with? Because it very well might be you. You might be the only person that they see as being helpful or able to listen to them without having you know, a negative reaction that they can process and, and work things over with. They may not know what safety is. They, they may either have a skewed version of what it is because it's not what they want in the moment. They may have a skewed version because they've never had that safety. And so it goes back to your role of how do you model that? How do you model structure? How do you model compassion? How do you model for them this role? And then also identifying, once again, through the genogram, through their life events and barriers, who are the other people that they can go to for this? Who do you want to encourage them to be spending more time talking to and and develop these skills? Because uh, a more healthy adult will have people that they can talk to about what they're going through. So let's model that now, right? Remember, child to adult. That's what we're really helping with of, of how to have a healthy, functioning, engaging, happy or happy-ish, because we know happiness can can come and go, person. And that's this is part of that process and part of knowing who you are and spending time on it and knowing how you feel and verbalizing it and, and practicing that language and, and how to stand up for yourself. This is all individualization. This is all separating yourself from this identity that maybe you were before and multiple parts you might want to keep or they might want to keep. But now it's what you add. What do you get to kind of tailor and how do you do that? This is a very difficult thing to go through, especially if they don't have any guidance. If you throw that trauma that most of our clients have or the depression, the anxiety, the eating disorder, then you also have a skewed thinking process because they're just not in that state of mind to be able to think all of this through. So now they're trying to figure out individualization when half of their identity feels as if, well, I'm just a depressed, suicidal teenager. My identity is to self-cut. I don't know who I am outside of that. I can't tell you how many times I've had kids have that conversation with me once they had the verbiage to be able to talk about it. And how do you find yourself if this is who you've convinced yourself that you are? And that's a very straightforward conversation that I'll have with a lot of them about this individualization. You know, you kind of decide and, and it can always be changed, right? It's not like, oh, I hit 20, so I can no longer change my identity or who I want to be. But this is the time for exploration because you don't have the same responsibility and consequences and, and effects that you do when, say, you're 35 or 40 or 45 and you decide to make huge changes to your life. All right. So with that, you know, the other four key points, I'm going to start off with just looking at you know, the hormone development, the brain changes, everything that's happening during this phase, because I feel like it gets glossed over by a lot of people. And by a lot of people, I, I mean everyone. I mean, teachers, 
therapists, parents, doctors, the, the teenager themselves, or, you know, how many times have you heard, oh, it's the hormones, or, you know, it's fine, it'll, it'll go away, it's just the hormones, you just got to get through the next couple years. And I know because I've said it, <laughs> you know, it just kind of happens because it does encompass a lot. What we don't spend the time really thinking about or even educating the adolescents about is how significant this is. You know, we can have, uh, and I'm not just talking about hormones, so I should I should clarify on that. I'm also talking about, you know, serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, cortisol levels. They are just fluctuating like crazy in the body as it's trying to develop. You know, you've got massive amounts of testosterone and progesterone and, and est- estro- estrogen sorry, in your system and, and in an adolescent system that's trying to navigate itself. On top of that, you have brain development that is happening at an exponential rate in the uh, executive functioning area in the frontal lobes, right? As we remember from our coursework and our classes, this is where the brain process is functioning in terms of daily planning, thinking ahead, organization, consequences. And during the adolescent phase, this part of the brain is very active and it's lighting up like crazy, right? So when when we develop it, we typically develop brainstem wise from, you know, middle to back forward. We have, you know, the the basic functionings like pain, pleasure, all of that, breathing, pumping of blood, things like that. And then we develop around that. We have the occipital lobes, the parietal lobes, the temporal lobes, kind of all of that that's developing. And then really last of, of what we've seen from various studies would be the um, the frontal lobes, which is that executive functioning uh, that we're really trying to develop. And that actually doesn't finish fully developing until about 25 uh, that's the the average. Obviously, it can change and vary depending on the person. And then if you add any type of substance use, that does stunt a lot of just general functioning. So we don't kind of get the same experiences. And there's a lot of debate about how much it affects the brain functioning. So with that, the brain chemistry is changing so much that sometimes explaining to an adolescent that you're just going to be angry for a bit is important. Explaining to them that sometimes you're going to feel really sad and there may not always be a reason that you can identify. Because what you will find is they will be relieved. (laughs) They will be relieved because it's a whirlwind trying to go through what they go through. Of Instead of just feeling sadness, you know, over an event, they're feeling overwhelming depression. Instead of feeling anger, it turns into rage and it becomes behaviors rather than just an emotion and a feeling. And teaching them that you're sometimes just going to feel what you're going to feel, especially with all the chemicals going on in your body and, and spending time explaining that. How you respond, though, is the adult factor. How you respond shows maturity and growth and insight. So let's just acknowledge that kind of elephant in the room that gets glossed over and really do a lot of psychoeducation with that. Everyone wants to know why they respond certain ways. Everyone wants to know their personality type, what uh, you know, what categories they fit into, why they make certain decisions that they do. It's why we have so many, you know, Facebook tests or all those BuzzFeed quizzes, of, you know, about all sorts of stuff. You know, which Lord of the Rings character are you? Which Harry Potter? Um, house would you be in? It's because people want to feel accepted. They want to know that people are like them, that they're going through similar things at the same time that they're an individual, right? This plays into that. This plays into quite a bit of that because they want understanding. They want to have that knowledge basis. And if you can help provide that for them about why sometimes they're feeling what they're feeling, helping them reach that conclusion, that will also reach that rapport building. Okay, so for the next one, we have relationships. This is a very difficult one for pretty much everybody. You you know, it's hard to find someone that you care about. It's hard to be able to communicate with them. It's hard to negotiate and manage all those feelings that you're experiencing while also going through life events. And adults, as we know, struggle with this. Uh, You know, so as an adolescent, you have not only 
your parental relationships changing as you are changing how you interact with them, how you talk with them. And this is, again, I'm using the language that I would, I would sometimes use with, with an adolescent depending on their maturity, but you're changing in your peer relationships. That's completely shifting because you're trying to find this individualization and this differentiation. So you are going to different groups. You're trying different activities. You're finding that things don't match with you as well as they originally did because now this looks so much more interesting. And how you convey this to your adolescent is important because you want to do that rapport building while also that psychoeducation. Then we're going to throw romantic relationships on there. For just a minute, you, the clinician, I want you to think of what it was like when you had your first crush. And I'm not talking about, you know, in third or fourth grade where you wanted to hold hands with someone. I'm talking about a full-blown, can't-speak, palms sweaty, butterflies or, you know, horses in your stomach, just want to pass out crush what you felt when you looked at them, what you felt when they would talk with you, would your throat close up, were your friends teasing you about it, did you tell your your family members, how did you handle it, right? Did you get mean and kind of pick on that person, did you clam up and refuse to have anything to do with them, were you incredibly bold and just step forward and tell them that you liked them? Really kind of think about that because that's an important process. You're trying to, you know, as an adolescent, manage all these other things, this individualization, trying to manage the hormones. You you now are trying to figure out your peer friendships and why this group doesn't like you and that, you know, you can only talk to this person from this one group because everyone else hates them, but they're really kind of your favorite, but you can't let anyone know. And now you're getting these ridiculous responses from your body, Right adding in the hormone responses to it, right? So that is difficult. (laughs) And again, adults really struggle with this too. So teaching someone or working with them and helping them understand that relationships are changing now that you're an adolescent. There are social groups, cliques, responsibilities, all that sorts of stuff that is entirely different when you hit middle school and high school. There are just completely different expectations about what a role should be, you know? And now we're once again going to add in technology. We're going to talk about what role they play into that. And I kind of hinted at it earlier. Bullying does tend to change a bit when you hit middle school and high school. And part of that is because there's so much more access to social media between Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. There's there's a million out there. And there's a million new ways for people to bully you. There's a million new ways for you to be a bully to someone else as a teenager, as an adolescent, and, and helping them understand that this is a problem that past generations really haven't had to face. So this is new, you know, of, of how, do we, how do we monitor this as, as adults? How do they, as adolescents, help manage what's going on here? How do you curb that impulse to just agree with someone, you know? on on whatever social media platform it is because you don't actually have to face the person you're talking about, right? It, it entirely changes things. It's also very much so an immediate gratification culture of, oh, we're going we're gonna to text and so everyone who's on this text needs to be available for the next 30 minutes because we've all decided to go to the mall. Anyone who's not there is out, right? It becomes very conditional responses, conditional love. If you're not responding in time, you're not included, right? Or, or, you know, Snapchat right now is pretty big in terms of that's how quite a few of my clients communicate with each other. Now, they'll do these group Snapchats. And if your parents don't let you have Snapchat, well, you just missed out on three, four events for that week, right? Immediate gratification. And you can also, I I really refer to children, media, and culture, that kind of article that I have on my, my references list for this because it talks about it quite a bit and how our culture has changed and the role that media in general, you know, social media, advertisements, TV, movies, all of the above have played quite a big role into that. So I would really look into that because in relationships in particular, it is quite prevalent and acknowledging this change of how, you know, when you fight with a friend when you're in third or fourth grade, 
there's a different response when you fight with a friend when you're in ninth or 10th, right? Suddenly you have to change your entire friend group. Suddenly no one is talking to you and you have no ability to be able to defend yourself, right? You're no longer invited to things or, you know, like kind of the reference I gave before of, oh, this was my old friend group, but I really like this new person over, you know, we're going to stick with the band analogy. And I can't talk to them in public. Of Even trying to navigate that is difficult. So that's where this just kind of acknowledgement and exploration comes in. The fourth one that I want to spend some time on is consequences. So the impact of just decisions made in this point in your life as an adolescent can impact multiple years past that. And that was semi-true before, but before family members had quite a bit of say over that. Now it's very different. You know, you're looking for that child versus adult mentality of teaching them how they manage these new consequences that are put into their life. When you are in fifth grade or sixth grade, you know, kind of those younger years, if you miss a day of school, it's oftentimes forgiven, right? Maybe you miss a spelling test, you miss a group project, but you have one teacher a lot of the time. You have one teacher who works with you, who knows your family. They still do more parent-teacher conferences if you need them. Or, you know, you have one teacher that you can just spend time convincing that it's not a big deal. Also, grades don't matter as much in elementary school. They still matter. But it's certainly different to be a fifth grader trying to get all A's versus an 11th grader trying to get all A's. So with that in mind, as an 11th grader, if you miss a day of school, you're up a creek. And it's not just because, oh, now I have a tardy on my attendance and I have to explain it to my parents and all of this stuff. It's also because what if your school is on a block schedule? You miss two hours of two, three classes. How much homework is that? How much homework do kids normally get? It's quite a bit. You know, between projects and essays and reading assignments, you miss one day, they feel very behind and many kids just don't want to go back because they don't want to have to make up that work and get all the notes. It's incredibly challenging for a lot of kids because unless you go to a specialty school, teachers don't have time to go out of their way to really help one kid who missed a class. You know, maybe if it happens every once in a while, but if it starts happening more frequently, as we well know, many teachers are overworked. They have so many kids in their class that kind of trying to keep track of it all is difficult. And unless that kid comes to you, you just expect as a teacher that that's going to be taken care of. And I know this because I used to work in a school and you would see it quite frequently of, of teachers would really attempt to help kids, but there's a limit on what they can do. And there's an expectation that the kid is going to advocate for themselves. Well, how do we teach them that? How do we teach them to face these consequences and how to properly respond to them? That's the adult portion. The child response would be to refuse to go to school, whether it's ditching, uh, claiming that you're sick, you know, of, it'll just go away if I ignore it for long enough because historically it did. You know, historically you were a kid or they were a kid, they were forgiven or, you know, parents took care of it, the school year ended, and, you know, they just got a D that year, but they're still going on to the next grade. So that's the kid versus, or the child versus the adult response. So I'm going to give you an example just to kind of drive this home of actually my experience in one of my first jobs. I was working in a department store, and I must have been in high school at the time. And with this, you know, I was in charge of the clothing room, you know, where everybody changes and, and things like that and making sure people didn't steal. At least that was the impression I was under at the time. And what I found out is that's not true. So when we would close up or when I would close, you know, and, and clean through all the rooms, I was instructed to uh, grab all the tags that were ripped off from clothes that were stolen and to monitor it, to mark in the security cameras when I picked that up so the the team could go through and kind of find the people who were most likely stealing. Within that, I asked, well, we know who these people are. We've, We've documented this multiple times. I remember asking my manager and they said, no, no, no. We wait until it reaches a certain amount of clothing items that they've stolen because then it's a felony. 
most of these people who were stealing were about 15 to 21, 22, based off of my memory. And I can't even imagine having a felony charge at such a young age. And that is an adult consequence, right? As a kid, let's just say 10 years old, you know, as a 10 year old who's stealing repeatedly candy from a candy store, you know, you get reprimanded. Maybe your parents reprimand you. Maybe the store takes your picture. Maybe you have to do volunteer work. Uh, most cops would come in and, you know, police officers would say, okay, we're going to do a talk about theft. As an adolescent or a young adult, I have been told and I have checked this story with others of my colleagues and their own experiences and their jobs who worked in department stores. And I, I can't speak to too many others, but they were told they were they were instructed very similarly of having this felony charge, right? Also a consequence of when you're a kid and, you know, you're told no by a parent and you throw a tantrum. Typically, that's like a 10-minute timeout. You know, you don't get to go to the sleepover that weekend, something like that. As an adolescent, when you are told no by a parent and you argue, it's a much more severe, longer-term consequence. Maybe you're grounded for a week or two weeks. Maybe you lose your scooter. Maybe you lose your phone. Maybe you, you lose internet privileges, right? And that then affects school. That affects this, this relationship and this instant gratification and disclusion. That affects the individualization that they're trying to go through. So different types of consequences are happening at this stage. All right. Last point that we're really going to talk about that adolescents go through and in, in trying to figure out this whole individualization process from the 12 to 18 time frame would be the future. And there's, there's a, quite a few examples I can give of how adolescents have verbalized to me that they find this scary. Um, but if, if we're going to kind of get down to the nitty gritty of it, as a culture, we, we do have a tendency to expect adolescents and sometimes younger people to know what they want to do for the rest of their life. And whether that's a good or bad thing, I'm, I'm not going to get into, but what I can say, it's a common expectation that I've seen, I saw it in all those levels of care that I had talked about before. And, you know, it's, it's talked about by a few different people. Um, you know, I will say the, the ones that come to mind the most would be the Boys Adrift and Girls on Edge books, I found those really helpful for myself, for some of the kids that I would work with, and also for the parents as just general resources. But it talks about some of the culture behind this as well, about, you know, how different genders, how different people, different cultures respond to this um, kind of expectation. So I encourage you to read those a little bit more. But it is a, it's a common theme. And I'll say that I've seen this. I've had five-year-olds walk into my office and I just, oh, what do you want to do? How do you like life? And we're just talking and they tell me they want to be a real estate invest investor in Calabasas because that has, you know, the best space where they would want to live. Five-year-olds. Um, I grew up in a pretty big sports community. And so when I was working at a school, I would be a little bit more involved in the volleyball and the basketball and, and just kind of in touch with those coaches. At the time when I was working at a school, I had one of the coaches come up to me and they were like, well, we're trying to figure out what's going on here. You know, I suddenly have, uh, you know, these kids of mine that are great players. They're so fantastic. But I found out that they're they're cutting and they're self-harming and it's kind of a group thing and they're getting more aggressive and I'm getting complaints from some of the other teachers. But it really just seems to be my girls. And I was like, okay, well, I'll come in and see them. They're part of the school. I can do that. And I just kind of watched them. And during practice, they were great. You know, they were working as a team. They were, they were taking great dives, all sorts of stuff. And then I went to the first 15 minutes of one where the parents were going to be there. And I, I truly feel this was not on purpose. There was nothing malicious about it. But the things that I heard were so harsh. You know, you had parents up in the stand screaming of like, how are you going to get into Brown with acts like that? That's, ne that's not a good enough dive. Hit harder. You know, take her out. Just yelling. And, and I'm probably trying to be encouraging, but those comments speak so much to pressure and future expectations, no longer enjoyment. Again, for good or for bad, that, that has to be decided situationally and, and more so by the family.
and the client, but there is a large expectation to know what you're going to do. I can say that, you know, in order to get into the right college, a lot of kids will try to get into the correct, quote unquote, high school. But to get into the correct high school, they'll try to get into the correct middle school. To get into the correct middle school, well, you have to have the right contacts. Your parents got to get you into the right groups with the elementary and preschool kids because you need to have the right teachers who start you off correctly. You know, you need to start doing sports at a certain age in order to really be able to be noticed by beginning of high school by the scouts so they at least know your name. And, and these are common things that I've told by so many people, you know, um, club coaches, parents, kids, teachers, college advisors, all sorts. And there is a very large expectation. So what happens when you don't feel like you can reach it, right? That becomes a problem when you're working with your adolescent, when they don't feel like they can do that. They don't feel like they can reach it or they can they can manage these goals. A lot of the times the childlike response, remember, is to run away. It's to not engage, is to not try or to cry, to not verbalize to anyone other than yourself how despairing you are, right? Because you, you're not using those skills as an, as a kid of why you're sad, of why you're crying, of why someone hurt your feelings. So as an adolescent, that's a skill that you have to learn or you have to be able to work with this adolescent and teaching them. So with that, the future is such a big deal. And I can say, um, you know, between the future and relationships is actually where I have most of the adolescents talk about their anxiety and self-harm. It's a common misconception that self-harm is attention-seeking behavior it can be. I can't rule that out. I will say that, you know, the majority of the time, statistically speaking, self-harm comes from a very big place of pain and anxiety. You know, when you self-harm, there's, there's a lot of things that mentally and physically happen to someone. And an adolescent who's just trying to feel normal, just trying to feel regulated. It kind of shocks them in their system. They get a little bit of relief from that anxiety. They get a little bit of self-punishment, self-deprecation. And knowing that that is a fear-based place rather than an attention-based place really shifts the, the focus of what you work on with someone. Because most parents will come in saying, I don't understand you know, they, they are doing this behavior, what's going on, and, and really helping them see that this is not a reaction to punish someone else. This is not an attention-seeking behavior. Maybe that's a secondary gain of trying to get someone to notice how much pain they're in by engaging in this behavior, but it still comes from pain, right? And that, again, changes the conversation. So, these five things, or specifically the last four things, uh, really feed into this first one of how do we become our own person? How did you do it, right? And, and how is this adolescent going to do it? Because if you can find out who you are and you can verbalize about it as an adult, well, look how far you've come. You had to learn all of these skills at some point, and you, you managed it well if you're taking this course and if you're learning all of these things. Right, So the same is true for an adolescent that comes walking through your door. They're finding themselves. And maybe part of that is communication. Part of that is verbalizing what they're going through. Because acting out and expecting someone else to understand why the reason that they're acting out is a more childlike behavior. Right, So how do we give them the words to talk about these things? How do we give them the words to talk about how they feel suppressed by people, that they don't feel loved by someone, that they don't know why they're angry, or the future scares them so they avoid it as much as they can, that consequences are, are so much worse than they used to be, and they don't know what to do about it because no one's listening to them anymore and, and they're scared. Right? This is all stuff that is so important and will build an immediate and incredible rapport with any adolescent that you're working with, right? So with that, you know, I will say this is just a basic average teenager and their problems that they're facing. 
most likely you have, and I said it before, a kid who is walking in with trauma or depression, high anxiety, substance use, large environmental changes that are happening, and you are, as a clinician, trying to help them process and manage all of this while also facing these big five things, right? And and really picking and choosing based off of your own clinical judgment and your relationship with your client, what you're going to focus on that day is huge. And knowing that it all comes back down to this individualization process of who they want to be, how they're going to talk about it, how they're going to verbalize it, how they're going to recognize the positives and the negatives of what they perceive and what they want is a large part of the therapy that's going to be happening in your room with an adolescent because that will empower them. And as we know, empowerment builds strength. It builds confidence. It allows them to challenge behaviors. It allows them to try new things. It allows them to process and have a safe space to do it because they're feeling confident in themselves. And so if you can work on this, you will see that it touches on all of those other things as well. Now, adolescent depression, I will say, is a bit different than both adult and child depression. I'm not going to get into too much of the specifics of the other things because that's in another course. But I will say that with adolescent depression, and I think this is a common misconception, it's not just sadness. You know, it's not just refusal to get out of bed. It's not just feeling suicidal or engaging in self-harm. It's also oftentimes explosive and angry. Remember, we have these fluctuating hormones that are going on that really changes a mood and a perception of something. And if you've got that as an adolescent combined with depression and low serotonin, negative thinking cycles, this bully that is constantly in the adolescent's mind all of the time, saying that, tell them how pathetic they are, that they're worthless, that why bother getting up in the morning, you're going to get a varying response from them. And it's going to be dependent on the situation. So there's one little caveat that I'm going to say with adolescent depression is it's going to change. It's going to fluctuate. It still comes from the same place of pain. It still comes from the same place of rejection of trying to find out who they are when they hate themselves, when they don't feel confident in themselves, right? So just for the the last however many minutes, we're going to talk about what kind of structure and assistance you can provide in helping them navigate these things. This, again, goes back down to your role and your individual style with someone, but I do have some key things that I find to be very helpful with any adolescent that I've worked with, and, and different ones. I emphasize different stuff. We, we certainly tailored it in, a res, in the residential program depending on what was going on, but overall, I would suggest these things to anyone to therapists, to teachers, to parents, to anyone who's involved in this kid's life. But there are ways as a clinician that you can really provide that, you know, that safe zone that we talked about in the very beginning, that, that bubble of life, that bubble of safety and protection and comfort. You can add this new layer to it. And one, one thing I'm going to say is, you know, just helping them slow down. It is so important as, as an adolescent to have time to think things through. It all feels so rushed. It all feels so new and immediate and great and bad all at the same time that there's so many emotions going on, so many conflicting problems that are interwoven with each other of actually having time to slow down and teaching the value of processing what you're going through and working through it, whether it's verbally, physically, mentally, whatever helps them of teaching and, and exploring ways to do this. You know, even if it's just sitting there and be like, wait, 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 I got a little lost. Can you, can you walk through that with me again? You know, I heard this part, but when was that? Of helping them manage that inner thinking process so they even have the space to work through it is so helpful. And then on top of it, they're going to see the value of it. They're going to feel safer because it's not going to feel so chaotic. They're going to know that this is where they come in to have time for them, right? When you're with them is, is when they actually get time to just be them and process with no expectations, no set pace, no, we have to have this solved by the end of the session. Because a lot of the times with their friends, 
it's that immediate gratification we have to know right away and teaching them that that's not always how it has to be right and that's not how it should be if you need to give yourself time of telling them that exact comment is so incredibly helpful what's more by doing this you're providing structure you know, you are providing consistency and a safe space to learn about themselves, whether it's, you know, having a set time of keeping the boundary of the time, you know, 50 to 60 minutes, depending on your own personal preference and time frame, whether it's certain days that you meet with them, whether it is uh, check-ins that you do uh, of rules about safety, whatever it happens to be, providing them this comfort, but this structure at the same time through the support is showing them what it means to be healthy and how you can model that for them and in a completely non-parental role, right? As an adult figure that's helping them find this individual process that you can also be full of structure that is good because at this differentiation time, at this individualization time, going through new structure is important because it's a time where they rebel against it. They are trying to find a new process. They're trying to find a new method. And part of stepping outside of that bubble and that safety is exploring different methods and seeing what works and what doesn't. Another one, and, and this is a little bit more for you know, parents, because I think this happens accidentally and they're in a lot of these similar situations, it's just tone. You know, as therapists, we're pretty aware of it. We are, we're aware of our tone and we spend a lot of effort and time practicing how to properly manage this. So I won't go into that too much. The, uh, the, the next one that I'm going to talk about is explanations. You know, this is a perfect time to be able to talk and process through why we're making the decisions that they're making, you know, why, why they um, feel the need for this. And, and this goes back into that slowing down process. As, as a kid, we're like, why, 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 why? And, and, you know, and when we get older, we find out, oh, that's why. That's why that rule is there. And helping them learn that process will help them apply it to other situations as well, whether it's now, whether it's 10 years from now. But going back to that slowing down and the processing and thinking things through, well, you know, they ask you, I don't just don't even understand why I have a curfew and they're complaining. And you're like, oh, well, let's think it through. How, let, let's go, you know, family member by family member. Let's, let's go through uh, why, you know, maybe their thing is, my mom just doesn't care about me, never has, right? And you're like, okay, let's, let's think about that. How, what, what is helping you or what is making you think that? What has happened? Let's see where your mom is coming from. Let's see where you're coming from, right? And, and truly, they may have a horrible home situation, but helping them tease that and not just react is important. Lastly, we have humility. You know, as a therapist, especially with an adolescent, they are looking for people and, and adults to judge them. So what we want to do is we want to help them know how to respond to that. We want to help them know how to be humble, how to react when, you know, okay, so maybe we did something that wasn't the best. Maybe we interpreted something incorrectly as therapists. And how we come back and say, you know what, I'm sorry. You know what, you're correct. I did, I did say that, and thank you for correcting me. Or thank you for pointing that out to me. I made a mistake of showing them that so they can, again, model and learn this skill as they're trying to find themselves. Okay. So the, the thing that I'm going to kind of close with, because we are running out of a little bit of time here, is emphasizing the goal to help them transition in this individualization process of who they want to be, who they want to try to be, who they want to explore being, and how to do that in a more adult fashion with better or quote-unquote better, healthier, I like that word much more, responses and coping skills. How we help increase that emotional tolerance so they can face these five factors and anything else that happens to come their way. Navigation is very difficult. You know, it requires communication, awareness, general skills, impulse control, you know, just even just the knowledge of the proper words to use and, and how to apply them and when to take a step away. So when this is happening of 
really processing this with them because these are new skills to them. They're going to think that they know them. They're going to think that they're applying them in, a, in the most productive way possible and very gently, but again, very honestly, very compassionately showing them a different method, whether by helping them process it, whether by uh, you holding a boundary and modeling, whatever it happens to be that is your style or fits that moment is really what you want to reach towards because life is not easy. <laughs> we all know that. We, we all know that it's pretty difficult and there's a lot of ways that it will, it will um, creep up on you, right? So I will kind of leave you with that. As a, as a rule, I always encourage people to please email me questions. Let me know if there's anything that you would like to know more about or resources that you would like for me. I have quite a bit as this is something that I quite enjoy working with. There's also a quiz at the end of this. So just click on that and have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.